Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. So if you would take your Bible and join me in the book of uh, Mark, chapter 2. We're in verses 23 through 28. This brings to an end our study of chapter 2 and the fourth of the five controversies that we've been examining since the beginning of chapter 2. We'll look at the last one uh, next week in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. But tonight, uh, chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, when man-made rules get in the way of God's gracious plan. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, what are they doing? What it is not, what, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never heard what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence. Some of you may have the translation, the show bread or the holy bread, uh, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so... The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Few things in religious life are more destructive, seductive, and deceptive than legalism. In fact, it is a deadly, deadly poison that can absolutely ruin and pervert one's spiritual life. You say, why? Why would you say it's destructive and seductive and deceptive? Well, it's destructive because it always breeds death and never life. It's seductive because it has a natural allurement to the flesh, uh, not the flesh that leads us to live in an immoral way, but an allurement to the flesh that causes us to be proud of who we are, uh, to be braggadocious about what we've accomplished. And, and rather than looking to Christ for our right standing before the Lord, we look to ourselves and basically say, God, look at who I am. Look at what I've done. I have merited a right standing before you. And then it's deceptive because it makes us think wrongly that we are the spiritual elite and that we are those who are above others when in actuality we become nothing less than a spiritual slave to our own man-made rules. Now, I think before we move into the text tonight, it's important for us to do a couple of things. One is to define legalism, and secondly, then, to look at descriptions or characteristics of legalism, and I provide those for you tonight uh, in your notes. First of all, let's define it. It's raising to the level of biblical mandate and command what God has neither commanded or prohibited in his word. I think that's a good way of defining what legalism is. Raising to the level of a biblical mandate, a biblical command, what God has actually not commanded, nor has God prohibited in his word. Uh, to say it a second way, it is taking our traditions and preferences, 
and imposing them on others as an act of spiritual superiority, even though the Bible says nothing of the sort about this particular kind of activity or behavior. Well, if those are helpful definitions, what are the characteristics of legalism? I note five of them for you tonight. Number one, it almost always looks for the shortcomings in others rather than oneself. In other words, legalism always has a finger pointing at others and never a finger pointing back uh, at itself, at oneself. Secondly, it looks for what is wrong in someone's life in order to criticize and condemn them rather than what is right in order to commend and encourage them. It always has that negative, critical spirit and disposition. Number three, it reinforces feelings of spiritual superiority and elitism that is man-centered rather than Christ-centered. In other words, legalism seldom talks much about Jesus. But it talks a whole lot about ourselves and what we're doing. Number four, it focuses on external behavior rather than the internal issues of the heart, which, of course, that is what matters most of all. In other words, the Bible makes it clear that you as a legalist can be doing good things, even right things, but you do them for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motivation, thereby making them bad things and not good things. And then fifthly, it is what I call the I don't, you don't form of religion. And as I was thinking about this in terms of my own life and in the context of Southern Baptist life in which I live, I begin to think of some of the things I heard growing up and even some of the things I hear today so that some people measure their spirituality and spirituality in this way. Well, I don't dance. Uh, I don't go to the movies. Uh, I don't cuss, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't have immoral sex, I don't smoke, and I don't chew. And that makes me a good, godly person, right? Well, not necessarily. Now, just so that, again, we have an understanding here, I, I don't do most of those things. I don't dance, it, not, not necessarily because I'm opposed to all forms of it, but it would just not be good. Uh, it, it would not be an artistic thing of any value to see me up here in any form of, of dancing. Uh, now, I don't go to the movies, and I, I intend to go see the next uh, Chronicle of Narnia movie that's coming out. If you don't, well, then you'll miss out. I'll go for you and enjoy the popcorn and the Diet Coke in your place. No, I, I don't cuss anymore. God began to work in my life as an older teen and took care of that filthy mouth. And no, I don't do drugs, and I don't have immoral sex, and I don't smoke, and I don't chew. And you know what? I can do all the things I just listed and die and go to hell. I can do all those things and be a hard-hearted, hard-nosed legalist. Or we can move to the you-don't category where I now take that finger and point at you and I say, for example, well, you don't use the right Bible translation. Uh, you don't sing the right kind of music. You don't tithe. Or at least you don't tithe off of the gross rather than the net. Uh, you don't wear a coat and a tie. Uh, you don't use a hymnal. You don't properly honor and respect the Lord's Day. And I suspect if I had passed out tonight a blank sheet of paper and asked you to take a pen and a pencil and take 10 or 15 minutes, all of you could come up with more I don'ts and you don'ts that so many people use as a measuring rod, as a plumb line for whether or not you are a spiritual man or woman or whether you are not. 
Now, it's that last issue that I noted. You don't properly honor and respect the Lord's day that caused the Pharisees so much heartache and heartburn with Jesus. You see, he did not conduct himself properly by their criteria on the Sabbath, the Jewish day of worship. He was not obeying uh, the rules and regulations as outlined by the religious establishment through their traditions. And so it is to this accusation, you don't honor the Lord's day. That Jesus will respond both in chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, the text we read a moment ago, and also next week in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And in both of these paragraphs, Jesus will establish for us two very important guiding principles that ought to help us understand, even in our own context, how we are to rightly honor the Lord's day. Number one, this text, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath, that's what he says in verse 27. And then secondly, in chapter 3, verse 4, he will tell us it's always right to do good, even on the Sabbath, even on the Lord's day. It is always right to do the good thing. And so with those two fundamental uh, principles laid for us, what is it that we see in this first of these two Sabbath controversies in chapter 2? What is it that we see that Jesus is trying to help us understand as we contrast man-made rules with God's gracious principles, purposes, and plans? I make three observations from the text for us this evening. Number one, do not let man-made rules make you a spiritual Slave. This is the fourth of the five controversies that we see in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. The three previous ones revolve around different subjects. Back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus claimed to have the ability to forgive sins, the right to forgive sins, the power and authority to forgive sins. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, he was consorting with sinners. He was eating and fellowshipping and spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And then in chapter 2, verse 18 through verse 22, he did not fast according to the religious traditions laid out by the Pharisees. Maybe he observed the fast that took place on the Day of Atonement, the only fast prescribed or proscribed in Scripture. But, of course, the Pharisees, being more spiritual, were fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. The disciples of John were fasting because he was either in prison or because they hoped their fasting might usher in the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus was not as spiritual as they. And so as far as they were concerned, Jesus just did not get anything right. But if it ticked them off that he claimed to forgive sins, and it most certainly did, and if it bothered them that he would consort with sinners and not observe fasting according to their traditions, nothing set them off like his not honoring the Sabbath. Now, we've learned from our study that the Sabbath in the Jewish world actually begins Friday at sunset. And it concludes on Saturday at sunset. And it is between those periods of time that a person is to conduct themselves in a restful, worshipful kind of a way. Nothing is to be done that would be considered work of any kind. I like what one man said in this context. Islam may honor Mecca and the Quran. Hindus may honor the Ganges River. Jews themselves may honor Jerusalem and the temple, but it was the Sabbath which they honored above all else. Why? Because the Sabbath proclaimed Yahweh as the Lord of creation and the Lord of time. Furthermore, it was the Sabbath that then and today 
still sets the Jewish people off as a peculiar and distinctive people called out and set aside by God. Of course, if we go back to the Ten Commandments found both in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, we there discover that the Ten Commandments, the fourth one is the commandment that deals with the Sabbath. And interestingly, it is the longest of the ten. It is discussed in detail in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, four verses given there to the Sabbath. It's discussed again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. So four verses in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 are dedicated to a discussion of the Sabbath. But it doesn't stop there. If you go, for example, to Exodus chapter 31, or Exodus 31, verses 13 through 17, you read there that God says of the Sabbath that it is a special sign of His relationship to the Hebrew, to the Jewish people. And so because it was the day of rest, because it depicted God as Lord over creation, Lord over time, because it was the day set aside to mark the Jewish people as a distinctive, special people to God, they were to abstain from every kind of work, especially since God himself rested on the Sabbath. However, uh, the scriptures are not precise in terms of details when it comes to honoring uh, resting uh, on the Sabbath. And so as a result of that, the scribes, the Pharisees, decided that they had to make sure that no one violated the special day of the Lord. And so they built what could be called nothing less than a wall of tradition. In other words, if this uh, platform here represents the Sabbath, they built a huge wall all around it to make sure that everyone stayed within the boundaries and you did not even come close to transgressing and walking over the line lest you violate the Sabbath. Now, it is true that they did come up with a kind of basic general principle that guided them in developing their 39 rules and regulations for the Sabbath. And the basic principle was you do no work that is not absolutely necessary to the saving of a life. And so if it's life-threatening then in that one instance, you could actually perform a work on the Sabbath. But if it was not life-threatening, then you were not to engage in work on the Sabbath. Well, uh, the disciples of Jesus did not follow this very well, because as you see in the text, it says, again, verse 23, one Sabbath, so Mark is indefinite there as to when this occurred, one Sabbath, uh, he was going through the grain fields. He was walking through the large grain fields of the day. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, the fact of the matter is, Jesus and his disciples are actually guilty of a double violation here, according to the rules of the Pharisees and the scribes. Number one, they violated the rule of traveling, most likely. You say, well, what was the rule of traveling? You could walk no more than 1,999 paces. If you did so, it was considered taking a journey. Now, you say, well, that sounds like a lot of paces. Well, it's really not that much. And if they had walked through the grain fields, that means they'd walked from the house to the grain fields. They would have to walk back. And so the odds are overwhelming that they violated this particular command. And they were taking a journey as the uh, Pharisees would uh, uh, consider it to be so. Although I'm curious. The Pharisees must have been out there in the grain field too. 
So were they kind of, you know, sneaking behind him and watching, you know, uh, looking through the corn stalks, the grain stalks, and uh, maybe perhaps they could justify it by saying, well, if we're tracking, tracking down a heretic, we can, then we can violate it. I don't know, but I'm always interested in the fact that they were out there too. At least all the evidence is, is that they were out there too. But it's interesting the text makes no reference to that. What is said there is in verse 24, the Pharisees were continually saying to him, look. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the question is, what was it that they were doing that was not lawful on the Sabbath? And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, they were guilty of reaping. They were guilty of harvesting and doing the work of reaping on the Sabbath. In other words, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25 actually says this is okay. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, it's your neighbor's grain. But the fact of the matter is, in this agrarian culture and in a context where the poor need to be cared for, if you happen to be walking out on a particular day and you get hungry and you're in your neighbor's field, it's all right for you to pluck a few things. You can't take out the sickle and start whacking things left and right and make a big haul, but you can grab a few things and eat, and that's okay. That's a perfectly acceptable thing for a Hebrew person to do in that particular context. So, so far, so good, but... They did not consider what Jesus and the disciples were doing as uh, plucking grain. They considered it to be reaping. And so they would throw Exodus chapter 34, verse 21 in their face where it says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest, reaping, you shall rest. In other words, plucking was reaping or harvesting in the eyes of the Pharisees. And so we have the rationale for their rebuke there in verse 24. Why do your disciples do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? In other words, I guess they had a theme statement, a motto, uh, eat, but don't reap. And if you have to reap, then you what? Don't eat. And that's just the way they looked at it. Better for you to go hungry, starve, and die than to violate the Sabbath. Now, that's what legalism will do when it invades the the body of Christ or any particular religious group. So better to go hungry than break our rules, they're thought. Better to, to go hungry because if you break our rules, we can promise you that the religious police will be watching. And they will be quick to ticket you for your violation. They are everywhere, and they are watching. They've got their radar out, and they're just waiting for you to take a wrong step. And the moment you do, boom, they are going to get you. Now, let's be fair here for a moment. Were the Pharisees, at least on a certain level, filled with good intentions? Yes. Absolutely. These were people who did not want to dishonor God's Sabbath. They they, they were filled initially with good intentions. But again, good intentions can run amok if they become matters of external behavior rather than issues and matters of the heart. That's why, again, if Jesus is anything, 
Jesus is a savior of the heart. He is a theologian of the heart. He is a religious man of the heart. He knows the heart is far more crucial than any other aspect of your being. And so they were filled with good intentions, but those good intentions began to build a man-made mountain of rules and regulations that enslaved that no one could live up to. And in fact, I think Jesus would say no one should try to live up to. In fact, as I was thinking about the text, I thought, you know, they've reversed uh, uh, that wonderful statement in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Now they've reversed it. And what God meant for good, they have turned to evil. And yet there's also another issue going on here. The fact of the matter is, somebody is going to make the rules. They're unavoidable. The fact of the matter is, somebody is going to make the rules. And so the question really becomes, who's going to make the rules? The Pharisees or Jesus? Or to say it another way, as he will in verse 28, who's really the Lord of the Sabbath? Is it you? Is it me? Is it they? Or is the Lord of the Sabbath the Lord Jesus Christ? And he will make it clear which is the right, the correct answer. And when Jesus sees man-made rules enslaving people as God never intended, you can count on him to upset the status quo. Don't let man-made religious rules make you a spiritual slave. Now, number two, remember that the Lord's day is to be a blessing and not a burden. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? Uh, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not a lawful thing for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Uh, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I find Jesus' response fascinating. You say, why? Because he completely ignores the Sabbath. He completely ignores the Sabbath and instead turns to an event in the life of King David. I would point out a couple of things. Number one, I think what's going on is clearly Christological and, and messianic. I think he's appealing to the, the lesser David who will someday be uh, giving birth through his lineage to the greater David. I think that's going on here. Secondly, I think what Jesus wants to do is give us a principle that should guide us really in the way we treat every day. And so rather than getting involved in a lengthy debate about the Sabbath, he chooses rather to appeal to a scriptural principle that will guide our activity on the Sabbath. And in fact, I think he actually clarifies what that principle is in chapter 3, verse 4, when he says, It is right on the Sabbath to, one, do good, and secondly, to save life. And so there is the principle that he wishes to uh, put before us. And so he takes advantage of, a, of an incident in the life of King David that is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now, I don't normally do this, but tonight, let's do. Take your Bible for just a moment and turn back over to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. It's not really a fancy, sexy passage, but there's something crucial that you need to take note of that I will address and have addressed in your notes in just a moment. 1 Samuel chapter... 21, uh, verse 6. Then David came to Nob, to uh, Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, 
Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. And so David is very ambiguous because he's been asked to do so by the king. But he shows up. Abimelech, Ahimelech is debated, sees him there. Now, verse 3, he says, now then, uh, what do you have on hand? Uh, Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread uh, if the men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the, now don't miss this, the priest gave him the holy bread. He gave him the show bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed before the Lord to be placed by, replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now you say, what is going on here? Well, I need to deal with the textual issue first, and then I'll tell you what is going on here. I read in 1 Samuel 21 that David goes to a priest named Ahimelech or Abimelech. You all saw that? Now, go back and look at chapter uh, 2 of Mark for just a moment and look at what it says there in verse 26. How it is that he entered, that is David, the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence. Uh, We've got a problem. Jesus says that it was in the time of Abathar, the high priest, when he did this thing, when the text actually says Ahimelech, his father, was the high priest. And so I raise the question for you, did Jesus err? Did did Jesus make a mistake by saying Abathar when he should have said Ahimelech or Abimelech? Well, of course, the answer is no. Jesus neither sins nor does Jesus make a mistake. So you say, well, what's going on? Well, here's what's going on. If I were to be able tonight to bring before you and put up on the screen, let's say, any single page of an ancient Hebrew manuscript... You would notice a number of things. First of all, you would notice there are no uh, chapter or verse divisions. Those not come along until the modern era. No chapter, no verse divisions. It's even worse than that. They did not even separate the words. The words were just constantly running. So there's no separation between the words. There's no separation of verses. And there is no separation of chapters. So question. If you wanted to refer someone to a passage back in the Old Testament, how would you do so? And the answer is you would refer to a particular incident and you would most likely highlight the major personality or individual in that section of the scriptures. And so Jesus simply refers to the more popular of the two priests. Actually, you go back and read 1 Samuel, and you discover that Abathar was far more important and far more prominent than was his father Abimelech. And so it would be like saying in the section of the Samuel scroll where you find Abathar, there's this story. And so they would know, well, Abathar's in this general area. You find him, and then you're able to quickly work your way to that particular story. So I don't think, number one, Mark was in error. I don't think Jesus was in error. I think Jesus knew exactly. I think Jesus probably, like most young uh, Jewish boys in that day, had massive portions of the Old Testament memorized. And so I don't think he is making an error at all. I think he's simply citing the major personality in that section of the Samuel scroll that would direct 
direct you to the story that he is alluding to, all right? So there's the textual issue that you ought to at least be aware of. Secondly, what is the point of the analogy that Jesus makes? It's very simply this. David and his men were in need, and they were hungry. And so they went into the house of God, and they ate the bread of the presence, what the Holman Christian Standard Bible calls the sacred bread. That is the 12 loaves of unleavened bread there in the holy place that represented the 12 tribes of Israel that would be replaced every week. And the only people who could lawfully eat that bread happened to be the priest, not a king. The priest, in fact, do you see what Jesus says there in the text? Look at verse 26 again. He entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is what? What's the next phrase? Which it is what? Not lawful. That's what Jesus says. It is. It's not right. It's not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And not only did he eat. Why? He compounded the problem, just like Jesus is compounding the problem, and he gave some of the food, some of the bread also, to his men. So what is Jesus saying? Something like this. It's not normal. Generally, it's not the lawful thing for anyone to eat that bread other than the priest. However, there is an exception when a higher principle is involved. Question. Which is more important, for you to rigorously obey the law and potentially starve, or for you to take that which God provides and eat and live to serve Him? And Jesus says that's really a pretty easy call. God did not make man to live under the bondage of the Sabbath. But rather, God created the Sabbath to be a blessing for man. God did not create the tabernacle and the temple system to be a, a burden to man. Rather, it was always His intent for it to be a blessing, to be a good thing for us. And so for David and his men to eat the showbread was exceptional. Uh, it was unusual. It was not the norm, but it was not wrong because God did not want them to starve. Furthermore, Scripture nowhere condemns David for doing that. Never. Never. You, in fact, you don't see even Abathar saying, no, 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 you can't have it. No, Abathar says the only thing we got is the showbread, and he goes in and gets it and gives it to him. And by the way, David's not the king at this time. Keep that in mind. And so what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that a godly man then did the right thing, and a godly man, God-man, is doing the right thing now. And so he appeals to David, I think, to draw a comparison between David and himself. It won't be the last time he does it. And he concludes there in, in verse 27 with the principle that should guide us all the way through in terms of how we deal with the Lord's day. And I make three, I give you three different ways to say it. First of all, as Jesus says it, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. To say it another way, the Sabbath was made to bless man, not for man to bless the Sabbath. And to say it a third way, the Sabbath then was made for man's enjoyment, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus clearly had a liberating view of the Sabbath that, that frees us. It doesn't bind us with unbearable burdens. Paul helps us out here, by the way. 
Because in Colossians chapter 2, he helps us understand what it is that we are to now live by in light of the new covenant and the salvation made possible for us by Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. By the way, just as people today have hang-ups over how you treat the Sabbath, they were having hang-ups in the first century over the Sabbath. And so in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul writes this, listen, therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, what you eat, drink, what you drink. Don't let people pass judgment on you with regard to a festival or to a new moon or to a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance, it belongs to Christ. And so whether it's the ancient Jewish Sabbath or whether it's, whether it's our modern day Sunday, the Lord's day, no, every day is to be a blessing that lifts us up, not a burden that weighs us down. It is to be a blessing that helps us grow in grace and maturity, not rules and regulations that bind us and strangle us so that we can hardly function with any joy at all. Number three, Jesus says, let the Lordship of himself be your anchor and guide in all things. Verse 28 ends this particular incident with the simple but profound statement, So, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Most modern readers in our Western context cannot easily grasp the striking and even breathtaking declaration of verse 28. Jesus, what does he do? He weds the Son of Man title to that of Lord of the Sabbath and declares he's both. He's both. Like chapter 2, verse 10, it is nothing less than a declaration of deity. If you had been a first century Hebrew and you heard Jesus say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, what would you have thought that this lunatic was doing? You would have thought he is claiming to be what? God. And by the way, that's exactly what he was claiming to be. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. That divine man who comes in the clouds to receive the kingdom in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and verse 14, whom the demons recognize as the Holy One of God in chapter 1, verse 24, and the Son of God in chapter 3, verse 11. He also is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus does nothing less than place himself in the very place and authority of God. And isn't it interesting? The story begins with the Pharisees harping and uh, carping at him, and it ends with Jesus simply putting them to silence by his declaration, I make the rules concerning the Sabbath. I determine what's lawful and unlawful. I determine what's permissible and impermissible. I determine what is right and what is wrong. I make the call. My word is final, and there is no court of appeal. There is no higher authority. So by... Extension and application. He's our anchor then of spiritual authority. Jesus says, settles it. First uh, Corinthians 11, 1. Yes, we can imitate Paul, but as Paul imitates Christ, so our bottom line is we imitate Christ in all things. He is our guide in spiritual authority. He is our guide in spiritual action. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so the question that the text demands is, is he also your Lord and my Lord as well? Now, as we move to close tonight, I want to do something that I think will be helpful to you. I know it's been helpful to others on many occasions. I was thinking in terms of the fact that Jesus, though he was moving us away from rules and regulations, would not direct us away from principles to guide us in good decision-making, whether it be the Sabbath or any other day. 
And so for a number of years, going to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, through chapter 13, verse 13, I've developed what I call uh, God's guidelines for the gray areas of life. And I think that's a valid way of describing what you find there. But in light of this text tonight, it might also be that we could give them this title, Gospel-Centered Responses to the Grace of God Shown to Me in Jesus. Gospel-Centered Responses to the Grace of God Shown to Me in Jesus. And I think studying them in a positive kind of a way can guide us in affirming for others what we're for, not so much what we are against. Now, again, there are some things we have. If you're for some things, by the very nature of it, you're going to be against some things. But how about for once us affirming and and parading uh, and placarding what we're for rather than what we are against? And so as those who live under the gracious lordship of Jesus Christ, I think there are ten things we can say very quickly. And I won't go to the text, but you've got them so you can look at them later. But I think you'll find these all are biblically grounded. Number one, I will pursue that which will build me up in my service to Christ. If it tears me down, I'll stay away. If it builds me up, I'll pursue it, whatever it happens to be. Secondly, I will pursue that which spiritually frees me rather than spiritually enslaves me. Thirdly, I will pursue that which will encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ. Number four, I will pursue that which will help my gospel witness. Number five, I will pursue that which magnifies my new life in Christ. After all, I am now the temple of the Holy Spirit whom I have from God. And I don't belong to me anymore. And so I will do that which will magnify my new life in Christ. Number six, I will pursue that which is consistent with my redeemed conscience. And that word redeemed is so crucial there. Number seven, I will pursue that which exemplifies Jesus. Number eight, I will pursue that which shows love to others. Number nine, I will pursue that which honors my body, which now belongs to God. And I will pursue that which glorifies the God who saves me. You see, the fact of the matter is, all of us are going to encounter situations where the Bible doesn't have chapter and verse, where it doesn't have a specific word of, do I do this or not do that? But yet God has provided for us wonderful principles that will work in virtually any context. For those of you that serve the Lord on the mission field, there's so many things you encounter that we don't encounter here. So, well, how do I know what's the right thing, the wrong thing? Here are principles, not rules and regulations that can bind you. But here are principles that will guide you to to, uh, flesh out and incarnate the gospel in a way that will bring authenticity and integrity to your life and make people more receptive to what you have to say. You may live in the south. You may live in the northeast. You may live in the northwest. You may live on the west coast. You may live in uh, middle America. And there are different things that are going on in different contexts that are viewed differently by different people. And you come in and say, well, we've got the rules and regulations down south that the rest of the nation ought to live by. Do we really? I mean, do we really? Would it not be much better to find principles of redemption and principles of grace that will lead us and guide us? Isn't it much better to live by the rules and principles given by God and not man? It's much better to live by those things that I believe set us free in Jesus and do not bind us with our own rules and regulations that suck the life out of the Christian life, and also in the process do great, great, great damage to our witness to the gospel. No, there are lots of rules and regulations we come up with that have nothing to do with the Bible. 
We need to be able to identify them, kick them to the curb, and live under the grace of God, knowing that He gives us the wisdom we need to live a life that is free, joyful, a blessing, and also attractive to others. Legalism is very seldom attractive. Grace living, on the other hand, always is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. It's an unusual one. We don't really have the problem today of whether or not it's okay to pluck grain as we're walking through a a grain field. That's not the issue. The issue is how do we view the Lord's day and, for that matter, every day. And we need to understand that you have given us uh, principles to live by. And you have made these days for us, not us for these days. And, Lord, there are times where the rules and the regulations are helpful, but if they become um, a chain, if they become something of a, of a jail cell that we're always walking around inside of, I don't know anyone that rejoices in living in a jail cell. And I, I don't want to do that either. And I don't want to impose upon others uh, things that you've not put in your word. I accept your teaching that that which is not of faith is sin, and so I can't engage in that which I cannot do in faith. But, Lord, that also means I need to give my brothers and sisters freedom uh, to make different decisions in those areas that do not have a clear chapter and verse. And that's okay. In fact, there's everything right with that. And so, Lord, help us to live by the clear teachings of your word. And, Lord, help us by your grace and for your glory. Avoid those man-made rules and regulations that, as our Lord will teach next week, uh, don't bring life, and they actually don't do much that is good. Help us then, Lord, to discern the difference. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.